0: Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 5, 13 through 25. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say... Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church, if you are new here. And what I want to do first thing this morning is I want to have Joshua, if you would just stand up where you are, I'm going to have some elder, uh, some of our elder candidates, and, and Rob, if you guys could go and lay hands on Joshua. Joshua leads Fishers of Men Ministries in Kenya, Africa, and we s- support him and sponsor a lot of children over there, and we've built, we've drilled water wells, we've done all kind of things, I don't have time to go into it all. We recently just gave him, uh, gave Fishers of Men Ministries $10,000 to begin a college, uh, specifically, we want to we have us we have schools over there, up until uh, they get to college, and then we send them off to college to get trained. We want to train pastors, and then that's the first goal is to, to create kind of like a Bible college to train pastors, and then the second goal is to offer a, a a Christian college that trains nurses and that trains um, doctors and that trains everybody else. But step one is to begin this uh, college for pastors, and we've given it ten thousand dollars, and Joshua is leaving this week to go over to Kenya to spend, I think the next month over there, uh, working with those pastors and working uh, with that ministry. So we want to lay hands on Joshua. We want to pray for him. It is a crazy time to fly, um, you know, all across the world. And so we want traveling mercies to be with him and to be uh, the, the spirit to watch over Kathleen as she stays here and holds down the fort, uh, with the family, uh, so, you know, so Joshua can be a globetrotter, right? Run all over the world, so no. So we, wanna let, we, we've, we thank God for the ministry that we get to be a part of with Fishers of Men, and we want to pray God's blessing upon them. Father God, I thank you for my brother Joshua. I thank you for the work that you're doing in him and through him, how you've called him out of darkness and into your marvelous light and how you've sent him back to his um, nation of birth. You sent him back to Kenya to minister there. I thank you for all of the fruit that we've seen on the the, the spiritual tree over there, the, the, the vine, all the people that have come to faith, all of the churches that have been planted, all of the children that have been fed and educated and taken care of all of the Christians that have been created. We thank you for this work in Kenya and Lord, we ask for more of it. We ask for a greater blessing. We ask that you would equip Joshua to train the leaders and that the pastors would get the the equipping and the training that they need to preach and teach the Word of God uh, appropriately as as workmen who can understand the Word and they can rightly divide and rightly teach the Word of God to your people. We know that only your Word and, and your Spirit will produce true lasting results in Kenya and so We ask that you would help, that you would lead, that you would guide uh, Joshua as he goes and he ministers um, over this next month in Kenya. And we pray for Kathleen, that you would protect her, that you would help her um, manage the household at home, that you would help her community come around her and support her in any way possible as she's going to be without her husband for about a month. So we just ask that your spirit would lead and guide and direct in all things and give them traveling mercies. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 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 Thank you, Joshua. We love you. Well, for the past 11 years, excuse me, man, my throat is going to be doing some weird stuff today. I apologize. Um, I've used the first Sunday of the new year to tell the origin story of our church and to reflect on the work that the Lord has done in our church in that year. I then usually end that sermon sharing some vision that I hope the Lord would accomplish in our church in the new year. Last year, I told you that I believed the Lord was calling our church into a year of building. First, we were to build up the body of Christ through discipleship. And then secondly, we were to prayerfully begin the process to find our own church building. Well, if you've ever built a house or watched a house being built, you know that the first few phases of the project are not very visually encouraging. There's a lot of planning, prepping, deciding, counting the costs. And then, of course, you break ground and dig a giant hole in the ground to lay the foundations. None of that is too impressive. Well, last year was a lot like that for us as a church. We spent most of the year studying the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, learning what it looks like to build a Christian community in a hostile pagan culture. We studied those blueprints in order to help us get a vision for what a thriving Christian community could look like in our city in our day and age. We stated it rather simply that God was calling us to build a long-term, multi-generational, county-over-country vision for gospel renewal as we await his return. But we didn't just study the blueprints. We also gathered the supplies. Uh, I am happy to announce, if you're not on uh, our Church Center app, you might not know this, but we raised over $250,000 to kick off our advanced capital campaign. <clears throat> <clears throat> A capital campaign to advance the gospel in our city and the next generation by purchasing a strategic base where we can all worship together under one roof and reach out to our neighbors and the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we did some really hard work this past year. We closed down missional communities, which was really difficult for us, in order to uh, retrain our leaders and equip them for the hard work of gospel ministry. Standing here today, I am incredibly proud of the work our church has accomplished in the past year. We've weathered some storms, we've refocused and recommitted ourselves to God's mission, and we've put aside some supplies to lay the foundation for God's church or our future gathering place in the future. These are all great things, and to God be the glory for them. But I want to do something a little different today than what I've done in years past. I'm not going to retell our origin story. If you want to hear that, you can go back and listen to any year-in-view view, view sermon for the last 11 years. Instead, I want to prepare us for the year ahead. There's a word that I believe that God has placed on my heart that I want to share with our church. Um. The past year, we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of culture. We've learned that the root word of culture is cultus, a Latin word cultus, which means worship. It's where we get our word cult from. So upstream from culture, if culture is here, upstream from culture is cult, is worship. A nation's culture is actually downstream from its worship. So therefore, if you want to change a nation's culture, you've got to reform a nation's worship. Now, it's really easy for us to look outside at the wider culture and see that everything is upside down at the moment. The culture, our culture, has swallowed a secular poison, you could even call it a pagan poison, poison that will definitely kill it. But right now it's still staggering around not knowing that it's as doomed as Babylon was. See, when you reject God and when you reject Christ as king, you choose to be ruled by men, which inevitably ends up being tyrants. So when you reject Christ and you reject God, you get chaos, There is no middle ground of neutrality. But here's the reality. I don't want us as a church to simply look at the culture, first off, and laugh. Now, you should do that. You should do that. We should be able to ridicule and laugh at stupid stuff in the culture, right? When our culture tells us that a man can give birth, we should laugh and say, good luck with that. Right? We, we can laugh. It's okay. But I don't want us to just laugh at things like that. Nor do I just want to kind of look down our noses at people and say, Oh, our culture is, is inevitably doomed. See, it is our desire to point at the darkness and to point at the stupidity and to point at the brokenness. But our desire is to redeem the culture. To renew it or to restore it, to change it from the inside out and to, to renew it, to restore it into a Christian culture where true freedom and human flourishing can be found. Now, um, recently, a, a friend of ours in the church, uh, well, it was actually like two Sundays ago, I think, gave me a jar full of mush. I didn't know what this jar was. I brought this jar full of mush home, and I learned that it was sourdough. Well, future sourdough. It was sourdough culture. It was sourdough yeast, Right? and the interesting thing about yeast or about a sourdough culture or these think of that word culture is it's living it's active right and what you do to make more sourdough is you f- put the other ingredients in there and then that yeast spreads to those other ingredients right consumes those other ingredients and then that bread rises and then you you can cre- you can create bread this is the idea think about think of it think of that idea of culture in in a yeast in, in yeast right you've got to have it already present here and then you add it to something else and then that culture spreads and changes and grows, right? Here's the idea. We have to have the gospel culture here or we have to have truly Christian culture here in order to when we move out into the world to actually change the culture. So if the culture's not right in here, it will never be right out there. So if we want to change the culture of our city, we must begin by creating and cultivating good gospel culture in here. Now, I've used this illustration before. Our desire, again, is not just to resist what's happening out there. We want to change what's happening out there. So the illustration of being out in the middle of the Mississippi, our goal is not just to not get swept downstream, just to kind of, you know, tread water and just to stay right there no no our goal is to go upstream our goal is to actually change things and if we can put on our multi-generational long-term glasses here what that's going what it means to actually change culture downstream or upstream is in 10 20 30 years we're going to need christians with real gospel culture working to reform education Working to reform art and media, telling true, good stories about the world. Why? Because stories shape souls. Stories tell us what the world is like, what kind of character we should be, what's good, what's bad, what's virtuous, what should we, what should we avoid? We need good storytellers. Third, we need people in, we need Christians engaged in politics, working to renew and reform and write just laws. Four, we need Christian businesses and nonprofits working in our city to make a more just society, a God-honoring society. And of course, this vision, in order for us to accomplish that, we're going to need, it's way bigger than us, we're going to need many, 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 many churches. So we're going to need church planters, men whose heart has been changed by the gospel that want to go lead people and preach the gospel and plant new gospel-centered churches. So we're going to need, if we're going to renew the city, all of that's got to be happening. Right? All of that's got to be happening. But here's the big idea. That will never happen. We'll never get to that goal if we don't change the culture or have the gospel-centered Christian culture in here. The Bible tells us judgment begins at the house of God. Meaning, God wants to change his people, redirect his people first, then send them out into the world. We're, We're not just in here telling the world how to change and how to live and what's up and what's down and what's right. No, no, God changes us to go live a certain way out in the world and like yeast that spreads to the rest of society, it spreads to our city. So we must begin this cultural change project by creating and building thick, joyful, spirit-led Christian culture in here. Now, you might ask, or you should ask, just what is Christian culture? What does that actually look like? And I could answer that question in a lot of different ways, but instead I want to turn to our text this morning in Galatians chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, open it up. And I haven't actually prayed for us, so let me pray for us, and then we can get right into our text. God, we need change. We need redirected. We need you to restructure our thinking, to reorient our hearts, to redirect our purpose in life and our will. We need someone from outside of us to give us what we need. And that someone is you. And so right now we humbly position ourselves under your word. I am just a man and I am a sinner like everyone else in this room. And so I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that I want to only speak your words and not just to, not to share my own opinions or my own thoughts. I want your uh, word to, to be spoken through me and I want you to direct your people. Father, I pray that your sheep, your people would hear your voice and they would follow you and a voice of another they would not follow. Would you guide us and direct us by your word uh, for our good and for your glory in Jesus name I pray. <clears throat> Amen. All right. So Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. First thing we're going to do, <clears throat> excuse me, is we're going to start in verse 22. I'm going to kind of work backwards a little bit. This is how the Apostle Paul describes what Christian culture should look like. Galatians 5 verse 22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's the idea. The fruit of the Spirit. When we are born again, the Spirit comes into our heart, right? The Spirit comes into our heart and changes us from enemies of God into beloved children of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us faith The Holy Spirit is the one who brings repentance into our lives, and he gives us a new heart that loves God and wants to obey God. But the Holy Spirit does even more than that. The Holy Spirit is also the one who causes us to grow up and mature and become who God has called us to be. Another way to say that is the Holy Spirit is our sanctifier. He changes us in a progressive fashion to look more like Jesus. Think of it like this. When you want to be saved from your sins, you cry out to God. He sends the Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit gives you a new heart and a new new desire. But the Holy Spirit comes into your life like a remodeler. He comes into your life like a contractor. And he walks in the door of your heart and he starts looking around and saying, we're taking that wall out he's like, that room, that room's been far, that that room's been too dark for too long. I got work to do in that room. And I need to go in the basement. And all the ladies go, no, you can't go to the basement. Right? And all the young people, he says, I'm going to that closet. And all the young people said, not the closet. Right? No, he's going there. So the idea is that God, the Holy Spirit, moves into your heart and begins to change you from the inside out. Listen, the Holy Spirit, Brings his culture into your heart, right? Just like that little piece, little bit of sourdough that gets put in the in the new lump or whatever. He brings. Yeah, I don't know how it really works. <laughs> I watched it and I ate it and it was cool, but I didn't pay attention. Right? I could have googled that before I got up here. So, <laughs> right? He, you bring the new culture into the the new or the old culture into the batch, and it changes it from the inside out. That's what the Holy Spirit does to you. He brings His culture into your heart, and then it begins to spread to every aspect of you. This is the fruit that the Holy Spirit begins to produce in your heart and in your life: love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And notice it's the fruit of the Spirit and not fruits of the Spirit, meaning He brings them all or He brings nothing. Some of you might be naturally patient, you might be naturally gentle. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit he, he, ri- he raises the tide and of uh, the, the fruit in your life and he brings growth in all of these areas into your heart. One fruit. This is what the this is one culture. This is what the Spirit produces in the life of a Christian. Now, John Stott, a, a very famous twentieth-century English preacher and theologian, said of these nine Christian graces, graces that they were kind of threefold. They were to portray a Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to himself. And I found that really helpful as I was studying it this week. So they change your attitude to God, to other people, and uh, to yourself. Let's take a look at it really quick here. The first three are love, joy, and peace. This triad of general Christian virtues primarily uh, regards your relationship with God. Okay, for a Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, a Christian's first love is now his love for God above everything else, right? Your chief joy is now joy in God, right? And your deepest peace is your peace that you have with God. So those first three virtues, the Holy Spirit comes in and he changes our attitude and our relationship with God himself, right? We now have love, we have peace with God, and, and uh, joy, joy in God. The, th- the second one, this is interesting to me. Next, you see patience, kindness, goodness. Stott says, these are social virtues. So the first three changes our relationship with God, and as our relationship with God gets changed, now these next three virtues change our relationship with other Christians. So our vertical relationship with God gets changed, and now our horizontal relationship with other believers gets changed. They are man word rather than God in their direction. And we, let's talk about it. What is patience? Oh, patience! <laughs> patience is long suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute you. Patience is long suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute you. Do you have anyone, don't elbow anyone right now. Do you have anyone who aggravate or persecute you? Don't eye your kids. Don't do it. All right? Kindness is a question of settled disposition. All right? Are are you a kind person in goodness of words and deeds? Do you do good deeds? Do you say good things? And then we see the third triad is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is interesting because these seem to be oriented towards the self, our relationship with ourself. Faithfulness appears to describe the reliability of the Christian man or woman. Are you faithful? Do you do what you say you're going to do? Can you be counted on? Do you keep the faith or are you a fair weather? Christian. Gentleness is the humble meekness which Christ exhibited when he said, I'm lowly, humble in heart. Gentleness is incredible strength under control. So it leads into the third, which is, which is self-control. Both of them, gentleness and self-control are both aspects of self-mastery. Not being led by my emotions, but having control over my emotions through my will or through my self-control. Here's what I want us to see this morning. This is Christian culture. This is what makes us unique from the world. It begins with our relationship with God, moves into and changes our relationship with other people, and all the while improves our relationship with ourselves in the moment or in the process A Christian is a person who knows the love and joy and peace of God. And they are to live in a Christian community showing patience, kindness, and goodness to the Christians around them while developing faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in themselves through the Holy Spirit. And let me just say the obvious. This can only be done as a member of a church. To think you can be a Christian and not be a member of a church is to misunderstand the whole thrust of the Bible. To be a Christian, even to be changed into the likeness of Jesus through the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit, you must be around other Christians that require you to learn patience and kindness and long suffering. Other Christians are necessary for our development in Christ's likeness, our, our, or our growth in sanctification. So if you aren't a member of our church yet, we encourage you step into this membership process that Rob talked about. Step into it. Find out what it's all about. Become a part of God's covenant community here at Sacred City so you know who your pastor is. We know who you are. You can walk with other brothers and sisters to be made more like Jesus. That's the end result here. Now, to kind of state the obvious... This is the type of community, this is the type of culture that we want to be a part of, right? We all want our church to be full of the love, joy, and peace of God, am I right? We all want brothers and sisters in Christ, we all want our brothers and sisters in Christ to be full of patience and kindness and goodness, right? And we should all want to be faithful, gentle people, full of self-control. Like, this is our goal, right? Can can we agree with that? This is our goal. This is what we want to be. Now, listen, here's the problem. I'm sure that every, or nearly every, Bible-believing church would say the same thing. But I don't think that most churches, and maybe even us at times for sure, are actually known for that type of community. Well, what keeps that from happening? Why, are, why is not the... Co- Listen, you don't find these traits out there in the world, right? You don't find patience and gentleness and self-control and all these good fruits of the Spirit. You don't really find them. Maybe hit or miss, but not altogether. You don't find them. You don't get into a community that feels like that. Out there, so if that if that kind of culture is being created here, people are are built for that kind of culture. They want to long for that kind of culture. They want to come into that kind of culture. That could be our missional strategy: create that kind of culture that these kind of people want to be a part of. Right. So why is it not happening in most churches? Why doesn't it always happen even in our church? What keeps your missional community from displaying this kind of fruit? Or let me bring it even closer to home. What keeps your Christian family from being a place known by this this type of culture, this type of Christian culture? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess the answer to that question. God tells us here in our text. He says through the Apostle Paul this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit, capital S spirit, Holy Spirit, are against the flesh, and we could even capitalize F here for flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, I am sure that if I asked anyone in this room, Do you want to be patient, kind, and good? <laughs> like, should we st- let's just all make a new year's resolution right now. This year, I'm gonna be patient, kind, and and good, right? I'm sure all of us, I hope all of us, there's a few psychopaths that are probably here, right? You would say, no, you know, like, okay, whatever. You do you, bro, right? We all want to be good, right? Well, what keeps us from being that, right? If I asked you, do you want to be faithful? Do you want to be gentle? Do you want to be a self-controlled person? You would probably all say, yes, I do. I do too, But far too often we aren't, right? I wanna be self controlled. And then that fudge across the counter starts calling my name, right? We are impatient, we are far too often rude. We are selfish and self-centered. We are bossy and we lose our self-control in angry outbursts or gluttony or drunkenness. Now, why do we do these things? Scripture says here, because your heart is a battleground. Your heart is contested ground between two opposing rulers. Two rulers are laying claim to your heart. Two rulers think they own the the rights to your heart. They are the spirit, the Holy Spirit and the flesh. I'm going to say again, capital F flesh. And now why I do that is because it's important that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. When scripture says flesh flesh, the Greek word is sarks. And it's not, in this context, specifically referring to your physical body like this, like skin and flesh. That's why I think we should capitalize it, capital F, flesh. Because what it means is our sinful or fallen nature. That's what it means, our sinful or fallen nature. Man's nature, without the spirit of God, is bent towards selfishness, vileness, and depravity. If you doubt this, just spend some time on Twitter or read the comments on some YouTube videos. Human beings are born with their desires set on the flesh. When I say set, I mean like a thermostat. Set, or yeah, thermostat, set on the flesh. We come out of the womb wanting our desires to be fulfilled, wanting the world to revolve around us, right? I have a two-year-old. When she wakes up, everything changes. She walks into the room, snack, (laughs) bottle, show, right? And there is no reasoning, right? There's no reasoning. She's like, or I'll throw a temper tantrum, right? Like, it's like, so... The whole house kind of revolves around here at this moment, right? This is the nature of the flesh. It's, it's, we're born, our sinful nature, it's set on the flesh. It's set in a self-centered direction. So we are born. Now, this is, this is our default setting because of the fall, because of what Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden. So we are born into this world with a sinful nature, and that sinful nature produces sin. Or as Paul says here, works of the flesh. Listen, we do not become sinners by sinning. We sin because we were born sinners. We have a sinful nature, therefore we sin. Okay? Now, here's, Paul calls our actual sins here, he calls them works of the flesh. Capital F, flesh. Again, let's run through this list quick. And this is interesting. Uh, I've heard it said that sin, that sin, You know, you got the fruit of the spirit here, right? And then we have the works of the flesh and sin comes in bunches, kind of like grapes here, right? So it doesn't come with one thing, it comes with a lot of things. So we have this exhaustive, it's not exhaustive, but we have this big list here that kind of overwhelms us and many times we get to it, we just kind of just rush through it. We're not gonna rush through it this morning. Let's see if this checks out. Let's see if this is what the sinful nature actually does. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's what Paul says. I love this right here. If you want to understand the Bible, the whole picture of the Bible it's this. Creation, God creates everything good. Fall, we fall into sin. Redemption, Jesus Christ comes to make all things new. And restoration, Jesus Christ comes back and, and actually makes all things new. I, I've heard it said that the fall is the one scientifically verifiable aspect of our text or, or, or creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Paul says here, the works of the flesh are evident. He's like this. Do you think mankind are sinners? Let me throw this out there and you, you decide, right? For all the people, oh no, we're naturally good. We're not. Okay. Let's just see. Let's just see. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Now this is interesting. This word is pornia. In the Greek, where we get our word pornography from. Pornography from. From. Good, I wish I could talk. Pornography from. Oh, that is hard to, that's hard to say. Sexual morality is, is having sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse. Okay? That's what it means. And he's gonna go in, the first three are kind of sexual or sensual in nature. This is what the flesh does. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. This is just things that are off limits, things that stir up your base desires. You could think of pornography. You could think of inappropriate shows on TV. You could think of inappropriate dress. You could think of uh, all these different things, right? This kind of, kind of three, three words there that's kind of a junk drawer term for inappropriate sexual immorality, okay? Impurity, sensuality idolatry what does the human flesh do we want to we have to worship something so we may we worship the create the creation that's what we typically do right so we worship money we worship sex we worship power we worship family we worship on and on and on and and go we make idols in our hearts that's what we do keep going sorcery now that you might get to this one and go oh finally one i'm not guilty of no sorcery around here. Well, interestingly enough, this term in the Greek is pharmakia. Pharmakia. Where we get the word pharmaceutical from. And this, this t- the way they practiced sorcery in the, back in the day was to use mind-altering chemicals, mind-altering drugs to put themselves in some kind of altered physical state in order to reach some nirvana or to commune with the gods or whatever. Right? So, I'm not gonna get into the whole thing right now. But there's a lot of Christians out there asking: should Christians use these types of drugs? The answer is no. I'll keep moving on. Enmity. Enmity. This is brokenness in relations. This, This is angry. This is adversarial. I hate that person, right? James says if you hate your Christian brother, you're not a Christian. That's what what James says, right? Enmity, that's a work of the flesh. I hate those guys. I hate those girls. Those those people are not like us. Keep reading. Does any of that go on in our culture? I I didn't know. Okay, I'm just seeing if it's still. I mean, this is like 2,000 years old, so lots of evolution has happened since then. That was sarcasm if you didn't know. Okay. Uh, enmity, strife, jealousy. This is relational problems, right? The first one was kind of sexual and orientation. Now this is, these are relational issues. Why, what, why do our relationships break down? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions, again, a rival spirit, broken community. Divisions, verse 21, envy. Thomas Aquinas and then C.S. Lewis kind of said something similar, said envy is the only sin that a sinner actually doesn't get some pleasure out of. Because envy basically feels bad, At another person's success. That's what envy does, right? Jealousy says, Oh, I want what they have. Envy just feels bad about what that person has. And much of our brokenness in relationships in our society is a result of envy and actually our secular society elevating envy and creating and saying that's a virtue. So, women. Can envy a man's role or responsibility and say, I should be able to do everything he does. And men envy women, right? And say, I should be able to do anything she does. And this creates dissension even between the sexes and even between different layers of society, between different uh, socioeconomic layers. Envy doesn't take any joy out of itself. It just feels bad. It just wants to spoil somebody else's good and feels bad in the process. Keep going. And strife, of course. <clears throat> Envy, drunkenness. So, can a Christian drink alcohol? Absolutely. Jesus drank alcohol. You can drink alcohol, but can a Christian get drunk? No, that's losing your self-control. It's giving yourself over to a substance and, get, and, and getting out of control. So no, drunkenness is condemned orgies, just sexual. This is what the world does. This is what the world wants. This is pornography. This is what the world glorifies. They were doing it in the Romans, in the Roman day as well, in this day of Paul as well. So he lists these things. Notice how the works of the flesh are the antithesis of the fruit of the spirit. Instead of love, joy, and peace, you have lust, anger, and rivalries. Instead of patience, kindness, and goodness, you have dissension, envy, and strife. Instead of gentleness and self-control, you have fits of anger, drunkenness, and orgies. The results of the flesh here. The results of the flesh are twofold. First, our text tells us, at the end of verse 21, I warn you, As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the present participle translated here as do is the Greek term prosontes. Prosontes, and listen, it refers to those who make a practice of doing such things as a pattern of life. It is not those who have... who have ever done these things, we know, because in 1 Corinthians, when Paul does this junk, you know, this big list of sins, he says this, for such were some of you, but you have been washed, right? So it's not like if you've ever done these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God, or even that you trip up and fall and do these things sometimes, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who make a Practice a habit, a way of life of practicing these things. So, those who are still set on the flesh, those who are still gratifying the desires of the flesh as a way of life and are not waging war against them, they will not have eternal life with God. So, the first result of walking in the flesh, listen. Is that we will be thoroughly unfit for heaven. We will be thoroughly unfit for life with God, for a walk with God. The second result of walking in the flesh is that real community becomes impossible. Look at the striking language Paul uses here to describe a Christian community that is continuing to walk in the flesh. Look at verse 15. And this, this is the verse that God reminded me of that led me to this text to preach this morning. <clears throat> Let's go to 14 first. I'm going to go to 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. To bite and devour one another is to sin against one another. It's to walk in the flesh, in word or actions. Think of it. Biting and devouring is destructive behavior. It tears down and destroys what God has built. It is cannibalistic and Darwinian, survival of the fittest and all of that. It is contrary to the way of Christ that seeks to love your neighbor as yourself. (coughs) Excuse me, here's the idea. The Christian heart, the Christian soul is a contested battleground, right? You have the flesh and the spirit and the flesh, this is the idea that I get here. The flesh is like a walking zombie right? And the flesh doesn't want to serve anybody else. The flesh wants everybody else to serve me. So all of my relationships now become cannibalistic. I am in that relationship in order to get something from you, to get glory from you, to get praise from you, to get attention, affection, something. I'm trying to get something from you, right? And so What is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is I'm not willing to commit my whole life and make a covenant with you before I give you my body. I want to steal something from you physically, sexually. I'm cannibalizing something from you. Right? When I'm... And when I'm not patient with someone, what, what is it? I don't want to serve you. I don't want to slow my role and take a loss in this situation. I'd rather get angry at you and take something from you. What? A pound of flesh in the moment. I'm going to take something from you. I'm going to let you know that you hurt me or that you're doing something wrong. Do you see this? Here's what we need to see this morning. <clears throat> Every single Christian in this room is in conflict in their soul we have a fierce bitter and unrelenting battle going on in our soul between the flesh and the spirit and if we stop fighting or if we simply give in or try to raise a white flag and surrender because we're just tired of the battle, our soul will be in great danger and the Christian community around us will suffer the consequences. See, when you are walking in the flesh, you're hurting your own soul and you're going to be hurting the Christian community that you're surrounded with. And listen, this is why so many Christians, they realize this about themselves. I have anger issues or I get really jealous or I envy and I I gossip about people and I, I, I slander people and throw them under the bus. So the best thing for me is just to be outside of community. No, no, no. You're taking your dragon home and trying to tame it. Okay? You're taking your zombie home and trying to tame it. There is no way to tame the zombie. There is no way to tame the dragon. The dragon must be killed. I heard one guy say one time, Jesus promises if we ask him for a fish, he's not going to give us a serpent, right? You know that scripture. But sometimes we feel like we've got a serpent, we've got a dragon. And here's the idea. If God gave you a dragon, he gave you a dragon to slay it, to conquer it. This is why the Puritan John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And not just you, the plural you as well, the church. The greatest threat to our church is always our sin. The greatest threat to our missional community is always our sin. The greatest threat to our family is always our sin. Be killing it or it will be killing you and everything you love. The war between the flesh and spirit is a fierce lifelong conflict, and our sin, if left unchecked, will destroy us and could destroy our church as well and our family. So what's the answer? What's the solution to this problem of the flesh? Well, the answer is also twofold. I want you to look at verse 24, chapter 5, verse 24. This is the way... Paul says it. <clears throat> and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's two very important aspects of this text that we have to see if we're going to understand how to put the flesh, our flesh to death and walk in the Spirit. All right? The first one is this. Every single one of us must sign the deed of our life over to Jesus Christ. We must sign the deed of our life over to, Christi- or to Jesus Christ. Look, the way that, that scripture begins, those who belong to Christ Jesus. The King James Version says, those who are Christ's. That means they belong body and soul to Jesus. They are no longer their own. they no longer say, I am my own. I can do what I want and make my own rules and live how I want to live. The first step of the Christian life is to hand over the deed of your heart to Jesus Christ. He wants all of you or none of you. There is no halfway. We We are no longer the captain of our soul we have resigned that position to Jesus Christ. He is now our master. So the first thing is we must belong to Jesus Christ. We do that by turning from our sins in repentance and turning to Christ for forgiveness in faith. The second thing we do, if we're going to walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh... Is actually a whole lot. First off, Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. What he means by that is when Christ died, I died. When Christ died, my flesh was put to death. When Christ came to life, my new life Appeared That my salvation is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus. It has nothing to do with my behavior and my works of the flesh or my works of the spirit. My salvation has everything to do with, did Jesus live for me? Did Jesus die for me? Did Jesus rise for me? Did the spirit apply that work to me? If that's true, I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. Okay? That's step one. So if you don't, you don't get step two without step one. Step one is Jesus saves you all by himself. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Second aspect, a lot more painful. And this is why many Christians, many families, many missional communities, and many churches are still full of flesh-driven zombies biting and devouring one another. Step two, look at that verse again. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice here that the the text does not say as it does in Galatians 2 that this is something that is done for us or something that is done to us. This isn't saying you were crucified with Christ. He said that already in chapter 2. This is saying you must crucify your flesh. This is something we must do. We must crucify our flesh with its passions and desires. Now, remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Jesus said this, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him look, deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paul here is taking the words of Jesus to their logical conclusion. If we want to follow Jesus, we must not only take up our cross daily, we must take it all the way and put our flesh to death on it daily. We are to take, metaphorically here, our willful and wayward self, our lustful and angry self, our gossipy and impatient self. And condemn it, and crucify it, and starve it to death. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. You are no longer gratifying or giving in to your flesh. And this is a this metaphor of a zombie, right? It it, it makes so much sense to me because this. Act of crucifixion, the thing about a zombie, right? You can nail him to the cross, but he's up there, right? And he's probably like, and he's coming down, right? And you're like, I put you up there an hour ago. And he's like, but I'm back, right? It's like, yes, you are. And what does it require for us? It requires constant vigilance. It requires us to once again, bring that sucker back to the cross and nail him there and starve him to death. What too many of us do is we let them off there. Actually, I need you right now. I need you right now. See, somebody cut me off in traffic, so I need you. Fits of anger, come help me out. Somebody looked down on me. Somebody said something bad about me. Come on down off the cross. I need some help. See, we feed the flesh. We play around with the flesh. We nurture the flesh. We, want, we don't want to be completely righteous, completely holy, completely separate from God. No, no. I need that guy every now and then, or I need that gal every now and then. When my husband says that one thing that really gets to me, I need that flesh. That flesh will protect me. That flesh will hurt those who hurt me. That flesh is your substitute for Savior. You don't need Jesus to die for you if you've got your flesh to lash out at everybody that hurts you. This is what he means. Be careful. If you walk in the flesh, you bite and devour one another. My zombie flesh, your zombie flesh at work in missional community. That's going to go well. (laughs) this is why Thanksgiving and Christmas can be so frustrating with your extended family. First off, especially if they're not Christian, because they walk in full zombie, right? At least we got a battleground going on, half zombie, half not, right? They come in full zombie. (sighs) Oh, yeah. Christians we must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires daily. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, again, live by the Spirit means you've been born again. You've been made new. This is talking about justification and regeneration, being made new. Look, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step With the Spirit. So it's not just about living in the Spirit and being born again, it's about keeping step with the Spirit. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? It means to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit in order to put to death the deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh and let the Spirit of God produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I could go on and on about this, and I I really would like to since it's only one service today, but (laughs) let's just get practical really quick. What does it mean for, how do I do that? How do I crucify the flesh and keep that thing there? There's a few, few things I can think of. Number one, we must give our flesh no quarter. That means we must not treat it kindly or gently. We should have no mercy on our flesh. Now, again, I do not mean this physical body. Don't go home and start beating yourself or something. Justin said, have no mercy on the flesh, right? No, it's not what I mean. I mean, your sinful desires have, give no quarter to your flesh. Do not feed it. Declare war on it. Say, you are one of my enemies, and I'm not going to keep you around just in case Jesus doesn't come through for me. How do we feed it? Well, the, the sexual side of it, we f- feed through entertainment. Looking at flesh, right? We could feed it all kind of different ways. Social media. If you are tempted in entertainment to be led by the flesh, get some, get some software on your computer or your Apple TV. They're, they have ClearPlay, they have VidAngel, they have different things that you can watch some of these shows and it will cut out all the nudity, it will cut out all of anything. Bet you can literally choose. Don't feed your flesh. If you keep sinning sexually, don't feed your flesh. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's gluttony. Don't feed your flesh. What's feeding your flesh? Is it Amazon shopping? Take it off your phone, whatever it is. Don't feed your flesh. Maybe it's relationship. Your old bros, the old Girls, you used to hang out with. Every time you get around them, everybody drinks too much. Everybody eats too much. Everybody gossips. Change your relationships. Here's one. My old football coach used to say this Excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got at least two of them, and they all stink. Stop making excuses for your flesh. Well, yeah, yeah, I lost my temper, but it's because she said this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I looked at that because it was because I, I just had, I had too much to drink or something, and so I, I did that or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I spent too much last month, but it's just because stop making excuses for your flesh. Give your flesh no quarter. When you make excuse for your flesh, your flesh goes, ah, thanks, bro. Appreciate that. Appreciate you want me to hang around a little longer. First, give our flesh no quarter. My flesh can destroy this church. We all have to think that way. My flesh can destroy my marriage. My flesh can destroy my family. My flesh can destroy my missional community. What's the problem? Flesh. What's the problem with society? Flesh. If we want the culture to change out there, we've got to change it in here. Secondly, make use of of every means of grace as often as possible. Think about this. All of the means of grace that God has given us are ways to help us keep the flesh on the cross where it belongs. Your personal time with the Lord, reading your Bible and praying, that can center your day, that can start your day off right, that can remind you I'm in a battle. Flesh, be crucified. Right? Right? Listening to Christian music, listening to Christian books in your car, listening to sermons, flesh be crucified. Being in deep Christian relationships, fight clubs and missional communities, flesh be crucified. Coming to this Sunday morning gathering, flesh be crucified, right? The sacraments, flesh be crucified. Of course, repentance when we fail, flesh be crucified. Honey, he climbed off the cross again and I lashed out. I apologize. Will you forgive me? Right? Repentance means of, is a means of grace. And then third, it's interesting. If you go back to verse 13, this is what Paul says. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's the idea. We want to use everybody else. We want to devour other people, their gifts, their talents, their friendship to build ourselves up. This is the zombie type of relationship we have in our flesh. And Paul says, what is the opposite of that? The opposite is for us to take on the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Christ Jesus being full of glory, one with God, fully God. He chose to come down and humble himself and become a servant for us. So how one way we keep the flesh on the cross is we serve others as a way of life right now here's the funny thing if you're like me when i actively serve others i enjoy it right but when others treat me like a servant when they expect me to i'm like oh right Paul here and God is telling us we need to choose the path of servant. We need to actively choose I am going to be a servant and I'm going to love my Christian brothers and sisters. And I fulfill all the law. That's what he says. We know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Look to your right, look to your left, that's your neighbor. Look across your missional community, that's your neighbor. Look across your home at your spouse, that's your neighbor. One way, the third way we keep our flesh on the cross is by serving our spouse, serving our Christian brothers and sisters like Christ served us. Paul gives a shocking dichotomy here. You can serve others like Christ or you can devour them like a cannibal. Let's choose service because Christ came and served us. Let's choose to walk in the spirit this year and to put the flesh to death. Now, it's interesting that when Christ, the night that he was betrayed, he took the elements, he broke the bread. Listen to this. He said, eat me. He said, devour me. He said, this is a means of grace to you. My body, it's been broken for you. My blood has been shed for you. I can give you everything you need. Don't take it out on your spouse. Don't take it out on your missional community. Don't take it out on your kids. Don't take it out on yourself. Take me. Take me. We're going to do that this morning. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for accomplishing our salvation. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying to us our salvation and leading us by your spirit. Would our church be known for this type of gospel culture? Would you help us put our flesh to death and walk in your spirit? Would you nourish us as we participate in your body and your blood this morning by taking the bread and taking the cup. Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.